And if you are new with us, you are coming right in the middle of um, what's been a pretty awesome series called Thread. Basically, we've been diving into the Old Testament, all the different narratives that you see in Genesis and all throughout, and uh, seeing the, the thread that ties them all together. I don't know if you've ever wondered as you're looking at scripture and you've got all these different books of the Bible, how do they all connect? What brings them all together? And I don't know if you came in this morning and again, you hadn't been here and you're like, what did, you know, was there an explosion at the library? Um, You know, what's going on here? Well, the idea is all these different books, all these different stories tie in together and the thread is Jesus Christ. So just by a little way of review, um, in all of these messages that I'm about ready to mention to you are available online. I'd encourage you, if you're traveling, if you're in the car, if you're at home, whenever you got some time, if you missed a few weeks, or again, if you're new with us, just go back and re-listen to them. But we talked, we started out talking about Genesis uh, in the beginning. We talked about the God of the universe and how he desired a relationship with us. He created us as human beings to be in relationship with him. In the Garden of Eden, he would walk with Adam and Eve. He would share with them. He would talk with them. And then sin entered the picture. He gave us a free will and we chose to disobey. And because of that, the relationship was broken forever. We continued on in the series. We talked about Noah. We talked about how uh, in, in the story of Noah that we find in scripture, God's mercy and God's judgment meet together, intermingled. Those two incredible characteristics of God, which he cannot deny either of them, they met together in the story of Noah as God's judgment came down upon the earth because of the wickedness of men. And yet, He had mercy on Noah and his family. He created for them a way out and started over. We talked about Abraham, how he made a covenant with God, how God appeared to him in a dream and established his covenant with Abraham forever in the people of Abraham, creating for himself a holy people by which he would show himself to the world. We talked a little bit about Isaac, the son to whom the promise was going to come through. And again, God wanted to show himself faithful and trustworthy and wanted to prove Abraham's faith by giving him that horrible test of sacrificing his own son. And God provided at the last second the ram and the blood that would suffice and would be the perfect sacrifice foreshadowing what Jesus would do for us. We also talked about Jacob, who was a schemer and a liar and a man who wrestled with God until daybreak, wanting God's blessing. And God changed his name, changed his identity forever and named him Israel. And he became the father of the 12 tribes. So today we're going to be talking about Joseph encourage you to turn in your passage of scripture to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, we are going to be moving around a little bit and I'm going to be summarizing a little bit because this is an incredible narrative and in order to give it proper justice, we probably need about 10 weeks to talk just about this story. But still, we want to be impacted by what we see in this thread series by the life of Joseph. 
What's coming up in the next couple of weeks from now until Easter, just to get your mind rolling in this direction, we're going to be talking about Moses, we're going to be talking about the tabernacle and the idea of God's holiness, we're going to be talking about Ruth, the period of the judges, we're going to be talking about David, we're going to be talking about Job, and you're not going to want to miss a single week uh, from here on out moving on, so I invite you back, I want to invite you back physically here every Sunday to be a part of this series. Well, before we dive in, we need to talk about one key thought that we want to leave with you from this narrative of Joseph. Okay, so if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember these two numbers right here, okay? Go ahead with this next slide. I want you to remember 5020. All right, everybody say that. 5020. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. 5020. I want you to remember that because that's our key thought. For the morning, and that's this. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's an incredible thought for us this morning. And, and, and as I was pondering and pouring over this, the idea came to me this week, 50-20. Like, let's just have them remember that. How can we have them remember that? Well, when it sounds a little bit like 20-20, right? I've been to the eye doctor, an ophthalmologist. We've got some here, I know, as part of our community. But you've been there, and you've been to that faithful test where you've got to stand 20 feet back, and you're trying, you know, to get all the things. And you've got to cover one eye, then the other eye, and they're trying to figure out what is your vision. And 2020 is normal vision. And what that means is when you're standing 20 feet away, you see what the average person sees standing 20 feet away. That's 2020 vision. Anybody have any idea what 50-20 vision would be? Wow, yes, thank you. You could see through things. That would really be something. Not quite, but it's close. What that means is if you're 50 feet away, you can see what the average person can see when they're 20 feet away. So in other words, if you've got 50-20 vision, you're able to see the grand picture clearly when everybody else can only see this. And don't you wish that was the case? I'm not talking about physical sight. I'm talking about spiritual sight because that's what this narrative is all about. Seeing the grander picture. Being far away and being able to see clearly, oh, that's what nobody else saw until they were this close to the situation. And that's kind of the overriding theme with this whole thread series. That's, there's an upper story. There's God up here beyond space and time. He sees the whole span of eternity. He's all the way up here. We can't see with his perspective. Then we've got the lower story, which is the narratives that we're diving into and looking at the context and situations and history and everything else. And then we've got the application, which is my story. What does that mean to me? Well, man, in the life of Joseph, if only he or we could have that 50-20 vision and see that all that evil that was done, all that frustration, all that darkness that happened to me in my life, and maybe you're right in the middle of it right now, if only we could have that kind of 50-20 vision that says, oh, I see it clearly now. God had something much grander in store. And the story of Joseph is an incredible narrative about God's provision and God's sovereignty. 
Basically, what we want to talk about this morning, the way we've organized the message, is we want to talk about four lessons from the life of Joseph that we need to take very close note of. Four lessons, four examples of the way he acted, the way he responded, that will help us in our situation to be more like him. I'll tell you what, many of the people, even that we've already mentioned, uh, that we've talked about in the Thread series, man, they were pretty incredible. God used them. They were pretty awesome. But a lot of them still have some fatal flaws, right? They've also made some mistakes. They lied. They cheated. They connived. They, uh, you know, were, were weasels and scoundrels, perhaps, especially in the, in the case of Jacob, but even with Moses, even with Abraham, even with these other, Noah, even with these patriarchs, they made mistakes, But I'll tell you what, man, you look at the life of Joseph and you're like, well, you certainly wasn't perfect. But man, if there was ever a great role model that we would want to be like, this is the guy. So if we can ever hold up a hero and somebody be like, man, be like him, this is the one. And here's why. Let's go ahead and dive into these four keys from the life of Joseph. Number one, family dynamics didn't destroy him. Can I get an amen to that from anybody here? Come on, it's okay. We're all family here, but I know you've got your family there. And when we talk about Joseph, we need to talk about, man, he had a messed up family. Just to give you a little bit of backdrop here, if you've been around church for a long time, you know some of the story of Joseph, right? He was one of of 12 children, all sons from his father, Israel, or Jacob, who we talked about a few weeks ago. 12 boys, okay, and he was the second youngest. Now, we've all been in families, and we know growing up that there's some sibling rivalry and, you know, beating each other up and pulling each other's hair and all that kind of thing, right? But they took that and they escalated it uh, to, you know, the nth degree because there was some serious hatred going on within that family. And you may think that you know why, but let me just shed a little bit of light on it for you. Number one, Joseph was the firstborn of his father's true love, Rachel. Remember, he was the second to youngest, so he had ten older brothers, but he was the firstborn of the one whom his father really loved. And again, if you're new to the church scene, you'll maybe perhaps not know this, but here was, here was Jacob who fell in love with a girl named Rachel. And man, he was a romantic, and he was smitten, and he fell head over heels for her. Any of you guys here have some great lines um, that you've used on your girlfriend or your wife that you've used, perhaps, to in those moments where you really want to, you know, let her know that you love her? One time I told my wife, my only regret is that I can only ask you to marry me one time. I think I hijacked that from a movie. I don't even know where it came from, but it certainly wasn't original. That's the best that I got, right? But listen, listen to what, uh, to what um, Jacob said to Rachel. Remember, he was promised that he would win her love if he worked for seven years. And then they pulled a little trickery on him, married off the other daughter, Leah. And so then he had to work for another seven years to get Rachel 14 years. And scripture says in Genesis 29 verse 20, it said, it only seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. 14 years. He's like, oh, you know what? It seemed like nothing. It's pretty impressive, right? But anyway, the point of all that is that 
Joseph was the oldest from that, his true love, not from Leah. That's important because when you think about the culture and you think about the way things were back then, you think about the firstborn and the firstborn's rights, the blessing, the land, the double portion, the honor, everything else, that goes to the oldest brother, right? The firstborn. Well, the firstborn's name was Reuben. But there was a problem. Reuben shamed his father because of immorality. He slept with his father's wife. And so therefore he was stripped of that blessing and that inheritance. And many commentators believe that Joseph then was crowned as the oldest brother, the one that would get the blessing now. Well, how do we know that? Well, you've heard of Joseph and his coat of many colors, right? Well, it's a very interesting dynamic in the Hebrew. Um, it certainly can be translated a coat of many colors. And I don't know if anybody else has wondered about that. What's a big deal? I don't even like things that have a lot of colors. You know, like, is this just kind of like a bathrobe? What did this thing look like? Why was it such a big deal? Well, in the Hebrew nuance, it really carries along the idea of wrists and ankles. It was a tunic that went all the way to the wrists and all the way to the ankles. And it was highly uh, ornamented. It was highly embroidered. That's where they get the idea of something that's got a lot of colors. But the point is, this was a robe of royalty. That's what you see other places in Scripture where a similar phrase is used. So it wasn't a working man's tunic. A lot of people wore tunics back then, but they were just kind of short sleeve, cutting off the arms so that they can, you know, move around in the, in the farm and all that kind of stuff. And they went kind of down to the knees. But anybody where it went all the way to the wrists and went all the way down, that was a dignitary. That was somebody who was honored. That was not a working man. Maybe you can see a little bit of where this is headed now. What if Joseph was the one to whom Jacob blessed and Israel gave the blessing to and said, here is a coat of royalty. You're not like your brothers. You're not out there in the field working. You're more here at home. Further evidence of that is in that culture, the oldest brother was also the one who was kind of the manager in charge of the rest of the family. Remember we talked about a while back the prodigal son and the story of the older brother that got bitter? Why was he so bitter? Because he really should have been the one taking care of his younger brother, going out um, and, and, and chasing after him, caring for him, bringing him back, not dishonoring his father. He had that responsibility as a manager. And that's why you see even in the book of Genesis, um, right there in, in uh, chapter 37, verse 3, it says Joseph gave a bad report. In chapter 37, skip down to verse 14, Jacob sent Joseph out to go give a report. Go check on your other brothers. That whole idea of being a manager, being a dignitary, being honored, it wasn't just, oh, I gave you a fancy pants sweater. It was way bigger than that. They hated him because they thought he didn't deserve to be the one to get the blessing. Changes your insight a little bit and your perspective as you think about that. Further evidence in the New Testament, even the book of John, chapter 5, verse 4, it talks about how um, there was a plot of land that, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You remember that passage? Sorry, John chapter 4, verse 5. 
So there was land, the only recorded land that belonged to any of the sons of, of Jacob at all there in Canaan belonged to Joseph. Further evidence that he was given the blessing. So now maybe you can see a little bit more with this family dynamics how much they hated him because here he was second to youngest and yet he's there and he's ordering people around. He's getting them in trouble. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one that's getting the blessing. So perhaps you know the story. He had these dreams of everybody bowing down to him. He shared the dreams with his brothers, shared the dreams with his parents. And this just added to the hate against him. And there in chapter 37, again, he sent on a mission. Go manage your brothers. Go give me a report. Go tell me how they're doing. They saw him coming. What do they say? Here comes this dreamer. Let's put an end to him once and for all. And they took him and they were getting ready to kill him. One of the brothers stood up and said, hey, we can't really, you know, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in this big pit and just let him starve to death there, apparently. I don't know which one of those two things would be better, right? How's that showing mercy? Let's kill him all right at once or let's just let him starve to death. But anyway, they saw this caravan of people coming down from, from far away. And they were essentially the first essential oils uh, salesmen. You know, selling the myrrh and, and the frankincense and all that. So doTERRA was alive and well, even way back when, thousands of years ago, apparently. So they said, hey, let's, let's, get, let's sell them for 20 pieces of silver and get them out of here, ship them off to Egypt, and we're going to be done with them. But this is important because we need to recognize how did Joseph respond? What's so great about him? Man, well, he was not fractured by family dynamics. He was not uh, allowing this, this, uh, this, this element of family and hatred to destroy him. That's important for us this morning. How many people are carrying around the marks and the hurt of family dynamics and they've allowed them to destroy them? Family dynamics hurt. Rejection hurts. I don't pretend to know the difficulties in this room right now that you've walked in with. Of marriages that are broken. Families that are broken apart. Sibling rivalry. Parents that treated you poorly. Parents that abandoned you. But we can see right here that this is all a part of Joseph's process. And if we had that 50 20 vision and even Joseph at the very end of his days could now see well all this was absolutely part of what God wanted to do in my life number two what else do we see about the life of Joseph skip over a page to chapter 39 of Genesis chapter 39 of Genesis number two lesson from Joseph temptation didn't tarnish him Temptation didn't tarnish him. Go ahead and start reading in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian who had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there, verse 2, or had bought him and had brought him down there, verse 2. But the Lord was with Joseph, I want you to underline that in your copy of Scripture. Highlight that on your device. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. 
even in the darkness, even after rejection, even after being sold for 20 pieces of silver, even in that fear, not knowing what's going on now, my brothers hate me, my father I'm never going to see again. It says the Lord was with Joseph. He was not alone. And then what you see unfolding right here is something that we see the enemy having a heyday with over and over in our culture and our society. Because if you follow down in the passage, it says over and over and over again, it wasn't a secret, it wasn't a surprise that Joseph belonged to the Lord. He talked about him all the time. And that was recognized among this pagan culture of the Egyptians. This guy won't stop talking about his Lord, but yet he's a hard worker and he's being successful and he's given more and more and yet he won't shut up about this God that he believes in and that he trusts. So then Joseph became the target. And his holiness became an issue of contempt in that culture, in that society, where evil and immorality was so prevalent. And the schemes of the enemy were, the crosshairs were right there on Joseph's back. Let's skip down to the second half of verse 6, and it's going to be on the screen up here. So now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me! But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. When you talk about this temptation um, account, there's a couple really important things we need to notice. Number one, it says that Joseph was attractive in form and appearance. It's a really interesting phrase that you see in the Old Testament a few other places. Basically, that means he looked good right here. But he also had this going on. That's what it means. It wasn't just he had that, you know, chiseled little uh, jawline or whatever. And he had those steely blue eyes, maybe. Middle East, probably not. But he had something going on, a little scruff, I don't know. But he had a great face. But he also had the wash. Uh, washboard abs and he'd been doing push-ups or something because he was strong he was muscular he had it all and he was the slave so you can just picture the scenario he's out there cleaning the pool you know with his shirt off you know and Potiphar's wife's like uh hello Joseph I mean this was going on back then and this is the scene this is the scenario Day after day after day, she was enticing him, trying to break him down. But he wasn't destroyed by that. He wasn't tarnished by this temptation. I want you to take a look at his response. What does he say? He says, how could I possibly do this against God? How could I do this sin against my God? You see, this wasn't the first time Joseph had thought about this. Who knows if maybe he was in the bottom of the pit, 
maybe at some, some time during the slave you know, transport and when he was going down to Egypt, he'd been talking to God, praying to God. He'd been connecting with God. He'd been in isolation. He'd been in tribulation. He'd been in confusion. But yet he's like, God, I'm committed to you. I'm going to honor you. This isn't the first time that he's thought about this. Joseph had made a decision before he had to make a decision. What if we translated that same idea into our own lives? What if in those different areas, perhaps where we're tempted, we are so closely connected to the God of the universe that when this temptation comes, knocking at our door, luring us in, enticing us in, we would respond with such horror. How in the world could I do this? Forget about it. No way possible. Notice what it says. It says she continued to entice him, but Joseph refused. He said he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or even to be with her. He was such a man of integrity, such a man of character, that anytime she walked into the room, he walked out of the room. Anytime he knew that they were going to be alone, he called in sick or he said, I can't do it. Or he said, I refuse to do it. He had that kind of character. Strike that call in sick line. That would be lying. Except for maybe he's sick to his stomach because he's so horrified by the prospect of temptation and sin. But do you see what kind of man this was? Do you see how he had determined in his heart and in his mind not to defile himself? And so when the temptation actually came, it was absolutely natural that he would leave. Later on in the narrative, you know the story, it came to the point where Potiphar's wife was there and they were home alone. Maybe she snuck in. Who knows what's going on with this woman? But somehow she was trying to seduce him and she even began to take his, his cloak off, his shirt off. She started to you know, try and do everything she could and he ran and left his cloak right there ran from the house. And of course, then she made up a lie about him, saying he's the one that came in here to be with me and was falsely accused. I'll tell you what, when we think about temptation, we think about this whole area, especially of immorality. If we are gonna stand here as people that say, you know what, God created sexuality for a great purpose, but it's within the confines of marriage and I'm committed to that. I wanna, this is what I want to be committed to. We are going to have the crosshairs of the enemy on our back. And you can see our culture moving more and more and more that way. Whereas anymore, anybody that follows scripture who's in the public eye that says, hey, I'm just waiting for the time when I get married to participate in that is made a complete mockery and a fool. I want to show you a picture up here of a guy that perhaps you're going to recognize. Recognize that handsome man right there? His name's Tim Tebow. He's an outspoken Christian, went to, went to college, had a stellar testimony. Stories abound about how uh, people tried to get him to fall in college. Then he played in the NFL for several different teams. Stories abound about how people would mock him for his stand that says, hey, I love Jesus and I'm excited to get married someday, but other than that, I'm not gonna have any participation in, in any of that stuff. Well, I don't know if you heard this, but check out the price of integrity. Go to that next slide. Many of you have heard of the Ashley Madison Foundation. 
which is basically a business that exists to allow married people to meet up with each other and have affairs. Well, the owner of the Ashley Madison Foundation put out a $1 million bounty on anybody, any woman that could seduce Tim Tebow into immorality. Look it up. Hey, any, any girls can get him to fall? I will give you a million dollars. Unbelievable where our culture's gone. The price of character is high. But we need to recognize here this morning the hope that comes from this lesson, this message of Joseph where he had determined in his heart, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put myself in that situation. I'm not going to get close to that temptation. How many times do we recognize, like even in the book of Genesis, like Adam and Eve, they got that one tree that they, that they know that they're not supposed to eat from. But yet, let's go ahead and build a, a, a swing. And that limb that's coming off of that big tree, that looks like a great strong one. I mean, we're not going to eat from the fruit, but let's just, let's just build that right there. And, and, you know, that's just where we're going to play. Or when we're going to have a picnic. I mean, this is a nice little stretch of grass right here, right at the foot of this tree. Sounds crazy, but man, when you think about our lives and you think about how potentially we are toying with and seeing how close we can get to the world in this area of temptation and not responding with the violence in the horror of how could I possibly do that? I'm going to run as fast as I can in the opposite direction. Let's go on to the next one. Number three. Isolation didn't annihilate him. Like what I'm doing with those words here. That's a little fierce. Annihilate him? Isolation didn't annihilate him. Verse 19 of chapter 39. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21. Here it is again, a signaler in the text. Underline this. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. He was in prison at this point for two years for this offense that he didn't even commit. Can you imagine if you were Joseph now and you're down there in the dungeon and you're looking back on your life and it's like, Wow, awesome God, thanks so much for this. I mean, my brothers hate me. They tried to kill me. They don't care about me. I'm, I'm you know, removed from my family. I come here, I get falsely accused. I didn't do anything wrong. My character's now tarnished and I'm sitting here in prison. You know, I wonder if it threw his mind a little bit. He's like, you know what? I wish I just did that. You know? Man, I'm punished for it. I didn't even get to do the crime. I mean, think about the isolation, potentially, um, the, the devastation that's going on in his mind. But he did not do that. He didn't let it get to him. This loneliness didn't lessen him. This depression didn't defeat him. 
because of that phrase right there, but the Lord was with him, even in the prison. Now I'll tell you what, when we think about our lives, when that moment that you came to Jesus, or maybe if you're here uh, this morning and you've never taken that step from death to life and, and to be a follower of Jesus and to be a Christian, to be part of his family, I think sometimes the way we pitch that and sometimes the way we try and get people to make that decision is the idea that, you know what, if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be so much better. You're going to have peace and you're going to have satisfaction and you're going to have happiness and you watch some of these guys on TV and it's like, oh man, if you choose to follow God, he's going to make you rich. And you kind of give this plug that like, God's going to make everything great in your life. It's not true. There's certainly elements of satisfaction and, and peace and certainly part of those things. And it's so much better than what the world offers. But we need to be ready to say, you know what? There could be some really rough times ahead if I choose to follow Jesus. I mean, wasn't that the way it was for the Apostle Paul? I mean, think about him in the New Testament, man. He was at the top of his game. He was well-respected. He was wealthy. He was educated. He was a leader. He was climbing up the ladder. He was at the top of his game, and he decided to follow Jesus, and his life was ruined. You know, as God revealed in a dream, like, well, you know what? I need to show Paul how much he's actually going to suffer for my sake. And man, the Apostle Paul spent time in prison and he was lonely and he tried his best. He poured his heart out. It says at the end of 2 Timothy at his last defense, Paul says, nobody showed up for me. All these people that I've poured into and discipled, I was all alone in my defense. Nobody stood up for me. And yet, in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, hey, you know what, Jesus, I want to die. I want to go be with you. That's so great but I know that my work here is not quite done yet. And man, that's just such a struggle for me. I can't even really decide which I want to do. Book of Philippians chapter one, to be with you is great, but man, these people down here, there's still work that, that I know you want to do and accomplish through me, even if that means, especially if that means suffering. But this isolation, this prison time, this darkness, it didn't destroy him. It didn't annihilate him. Instead, it only made him stronger and stronger and stronger because when the soul is ripped bare is when we can most find the opportunity to have our healer come. And if we had that 50, 20 vision and couldn't just see what was right here in front of us but instead could see the grander scheme and the grander picture I think that a lot of things would change for us well what about the last piece his life was a reflection of God's redemption Joseph's whole life was a reflection of God's redemption. You see, holiness takes a long time. Joseph was 17 years old when he was traded into slavery, when he was betrayed, when he was sold out. 17. Scripture says, 
when he was released from prison and when Pharaoh wanted to hear him, he heard this message about this man who could interpret dreams who had God on his side and the, and the cupbearer had totally forgotten about Joseph for two years, but then he finally remembered and Pharaoh brought him out of prison and he answered his dream with part of God's providential help for him. And at 30 years old, Joseph was brought to power. From 17 to 30, 13 years of being a slave, being in isolation, being wrongly accused, being imprisoned. That's how long it took. I'll tell you what, any more for me, and I know for many of you here, it's like we want results instantly, right? If I see some video that looks pretty cool on Facebook and I want to check it out, oh, that looks funny. You know what? If a funny thing doesn't happen in the first 30 seconds, forget about it. You know what I mean? If it's a two-minute-long video, nah, way too long. I can't waste my time. Keep going. We want things to happen right away. But I'll tell you what, God's timetable is a lot different. It could be for you here this morning. You're in the midst of something really difficult. You're in the midst of some manner of pit. Abandoned. Left alone. Betrayed. You're suffering for something that maybe you didn't even do. You're full of confusion. I just want to offer out hope to you this morning. Now, we don't see that upper story, right? And man, you think about the life of Joseph. You think about all those banners that he could have taken on as this is the story of my life right here. Unloved. Discredited, betrayed, falsely accused, forgotten. This is my identity. And he probably had the right to say that. He could have let those circumstances define him and mark him and name him. But instead, as God continued to raise up his power and his influence, his life reflected the beauty of God's redemption. You see some of that in chapter 45. I encourage you to read that later on. Today, perhaps this week, Genesis chapter 45, that's that incredible moment of revelation where he finally brings all of his brothers in who had traveled over to Egypt because there was a great famine in the land. They didn't realize it, but Joseph was all the way up here now and second in command over the entire land. And he was disguised and his brothers came wanting something and Joseph couldn't believe that his brothers were here right before him, bowing down before him. Everything that he saw in his dream was now coming true. All these years later, and I love it in chapter 45, it says Joseph could not stand it any longer and he had everybody else leave, all the attendants, all the soldiers, everybody else left as he revealed himself to his brothers and it says he wept so loud they heard it all throughout the house. He was crying and weeping and says, don't you realize I'm your brother who you betrayed, who you sold out, I forgive you. And three different times in that passage, it says, God sent me here. God sent me before you. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You see, because they were all saying, I can't believe we did this. We're so sorry. You know, like we knew that that was wrong. And we didn't say, hey, you didn't do it. That evil, that you didn't do that. That was all part of God's plan. 
And so when you talk about this thread that you see, we got these lessons, these incredible lessons from his life about how to respond to circumstances in our lives. But you also see a shadow and a hinting of a greater redeemer, right? Think about how Joseph reflected Jesus in so many ways. He was the beloved son of his father. They were both stripped of their royalty and were made into commoners. They were both rejected by their family, abandoned by those who who loved them the most and who they loved the most. They were both sold out and betrayed for pieces of silver. You remember Jesus with Judas and 30 pieces of silver. They both came to public power and influence at the age of 30. They were both falsely accused and imprisoned. And they both revealed themselves as a savior at the proper time to the very ones that betrayed him and didn't deserve it. Scripture says at the right time, Jesus came down. And there's so many different nuances and beautiful things about this story. You think about the motif of the cloak of royalty that was stripped off, that was dipped in blood. And yet when Joseph rose again to power, what does it say? They gave him again a cloak of royalty there in Pharaoh's court. And yet he took that off and showed them, showed himself to his brothers. It's me, your brother Joseph. So I don't know where that lands on you here this morning. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 is the one that we're centered on and we want that kind of vision for our lives. But I love even what happened right before that key moment where his brother said, please forgive us the transgressions of your servants and make us your servants. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your slaves in verse 18. Joseph said, no, you're not my slaves. You're my family. That remind you of something in the New Testament, John chapter 15. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you my friend. I call you my brothers and sisters. I call you my sons and daughters. You are ushered in, invited in with that forgiveness back into a relationship with me. And that's the most incredible news that I could possibly give to you this morning. So where did that land with you this morning? I don't know. But man, I'll tell you what. When you think about what Jesus did for us, represented in this true story, hinted at, foreshadowed at in this true story, come to reality with us, with the life of Jesus. His brother, so humbled, so amazed, so in awe. How can you possibly do this? Please, we could barely even come into your presence and just be your servants, reminiscent of the prodigal sons, right? prodigal son who came back and said please just make me as a hired man forget it what does the loving father do he kills the fatted calf what else puts a ring on his finger he's royalty you're mine and man for you this morning maybe you've never experienced that forgiveness that redemption you've never taken that step from death to life and I'm hoping and praying that that could be an opportunity we can talk about that and pray about that together this morning. 
Maybe for some of you, man, you're in isolation. Maybe you've been rejected by family. Maybe you've been feeling so alone. Maybe you're tempted by something and you've given in to something. Whatever the situation is, we want you to know that there's a God who forgives, a God who saves, and a God who redeems. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we just are in awe of you. When we think about what you did for us, God, our hearts cry out, how can this possibly be? So, Lord, this morning, we just want to respond to you in worship. Fresh and anew when we think about the atrocities that our sinful heart have committed in the presence of a holy God. And yet, you invite us in and you plead our cause and you make all of our wrongs right and you renew us, God. You've given us a new heart. Let that move us this morning, God. We love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.